I'm gonna repeat a little bit, are we starting? Yeah. So this is where at the entrance of historical Nevelan, what I described as we're eating pizza as an unusual place. Uh, Nevelan is has no biblical significance or otherwise. The term just means uh, pretty place, pretty view. Ilan is a tree. You see both. We'll see at the top, it's a nice view. Um, it's a modern name uh, in an ancient area, not far, not far from where the Aron Kodesh was uh, for 20 years in Kiryat, uh, in Givat Kiryat Yarim. And this is a place that has a mystery about it. It, is, um, it was established as a kibbutz. Uh, it was called Shilat originally, not Nevelan is much later name. It was called Shilat. It was established in 1946, set up by a very small group of mostly French uh, young people, very young people, teenagers, many of them younger than you. And uh, they came in 46. Others followed. Um, they had a, a, a manageable, functional, uh, economically viable kibbutz, which was something to be said because not all kibbutzim managed to make ends meet and they did. They had their different industries and the story that we're going to tell is um, what we do know is that they, um, the last of the founders and the last of the settlers of kibbutz Shilat moved out in 1956 never to return. Uh, they fell off the map and the Israelis who were so uh, so exacting and almost obsessive in their retaining of archives and histories and details. We mentioned earlier today how every battle is lovingly replayed, walking in the footsteps of the soldiers. And um, here the mystery is, is what happened? And um, you will search in vain for a clear record of it. I, how do I, Menasha Blyweiss, know stuff? I am not responsible for my knowledge. Oh, I, mean, I, I had my backpack and I thought I was going to be my backpack. I, I, I have pictures to show you back home, uh, but I do have pictures. So I am somewhat cribbing, but adding a Torah perspective to it, uh, the research of a certain Naftali Raz, who was a tour guide from the Viseret Sion, near where we started today, um, who came down here and was, as a kid, used to play in the ruins and wonder what this was. And he made it uh, a, a point of uh, fascination for himself that he would get to the bottom of the story and he researched it. So a lot of my data, a lot of the stories that I will tell you comes through his research that he has mostly through, he tracked down some of the original founders of this place uh, and got the story, but very, very reluctantly from them. And why were they so unforthcoming? Why were they not so willing to share what, what, what happened here? What is the mystery of Nevelan? So we'll try, to, we'll try to figure that out. It was, a, it's a, it was a nice hill, right? Also on a hill, you always want to, the high ground. Um, it was sitting over the classic road between Yerushalayim and the coastal plain. Uh, so it was strategically, as we talked about earlier today, really important. It was set up for that purpose, 1946, heading, into the, heading clearly into some kind of wartime. Uh, they didn't know what was going on, but they understood that the British were about to evacuate Palestine and the Arabs were not going to let it go easily. And not having the, uh, this, this critical strategic area was, uh, that was on everybody's minds. And so they sent these young kids to, uh, to Nevealan. So that's, that's the setup. What you see, um, you see certain uh, signposts, including, for example, those are um, the, the red crossed bars down below which sets up which actually um, was a sign that used to be across the street um is actually uh they're, they're pieces of old um army um jeeps and trucks and such that were here along the road and they were and now, now they're simply landmarks um i should say 1956 the place went to seed and it was abandoned um in 1970 totally unrelated except geographically 
a group of mostly American olim, um, people who moved to Eretz Yisrael idealistically, came and set up uh, the modern-day version of Neve Elan uh, as a moshav. A moshav is a slightly less um, communist-style kibbutz, where there's a few more private individual rights. You could, for example, go out if you had a little money that you made on the side and buy your own personal radio without putting it to vote in the kibbutz uh, main, main uh, membership, um, unlike, unlike a kibbutz. So they set up a moshav, and um, the modern story of Nevelan is not a happy one either. Uh, we knew people, my parents were actually friendly with a couple who uh, basically, you know, you put in everything. You move to Eretz Yisrael, it's a struggle. You know, you know the line, how do you make a small fortune in Eretz Yisrael? You bring a large one and it shrinks real quick. So these are people who came, you know, lost everything essentially, financially, set up shop, and um, they watched as uh, their, their holdings started to lose their value. But because it was a moshav, uh, they really didn't have personal financial rights. And the moshav itself was not economically viable, which is pretty common here. Um, so it went under. And in the last couple decades, they started, um, people moved in and started selling off the most valuable commodity, which is the real estate. This is really pricey real estate in the Jerusalem Hills. And um, so the, but, but only a few people, it was a big corruption, only a few people managed to get in on the, on, on the real estate deal. Um, and the original founders from 1970 uh, basically got nothing. And so they're living their old age in, uh, in poverty. And, um, and now today, increasingly, they've added and they've expanded and they've built new roads. And now it's very much a bedroom uh, suburban community to Jerusalem with very pricey real estate value. Uh, so that's that's the modern Neve Elan, um, and that somehow like people don't can't tell the difference. This is the original uh, kibbutz, and again, not that deep roots. Any any off the you know, any theory like just hearing the little I gave you so far, what happened here? Fighting, 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 in fighting, good, good. You're onto something. Oh, so then I'm wrong. What were you gonna say? I, I was gonna say they they could have had a scam and, and they're all in it together and. They no, it wasn't, wasn't quite as dramatic they, as that. They took some money and disappeared. And you can tell that since it's me, we're going someplace spiritual. Right? I, I, I led in, we started talking about Parsha Tsaras, and we talked about the most obvious connection of the Parsha, which is that there is, if you're a Torah Jew, you recognize a correlation between our behavior and what happens. And um, particularly in Eretz Israel, as we'll learn in a few weeks in Parsha Zacharim, a couple weeks in Parsha Zacharimos, the, um, the land, it's Eretz HaOcheles Es Toshfea, the land eats its inhabitants, and when it doesn't like you, you give it indigestion and it regurgitates you. Uh, that's the image of a suicide bomber with the body parts strewn all over the place. But that's what the Torah says, that's the Pasuk, that, that um, Eretz Israel is finicky, Rashi says, like a, um, like a person with delicate digestion. And if it, it doesn't tolerate sin, and if you feed it sin, it, it, it throws it up. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of the background, but let's go explore the, um, the buildings and what they did manage to create here. Uh, there's a little blurb here. It doesn't really say much. a lot of blabber. So we'll continue, right? Yeah. So we're sitting at the top, and it's a beautiful view. Um, you can see. Am I blocking anybody? So you can see we're looking. We're looking due north. So um, we're looking towards the Shomron. Um, that mountain on the distance was already in Jordan before the Six-Day War. And this mountain over here, this was still in Eretz Israel, but not well developed. Let me tell you what we're looking at. The first series, of, there's a cluster of buildings here, and then what looks like a hotel, because it's a hotel on the, on the, on the distance, is Malik Hamisha, where the five people were murdered in these forests. In, in one of these forests down here, they were murdered in the 1930s, and they built that kibbutz 
as a memorial to the name for them. Um, beyond there is Har Adar, which we talked about earlier. Um, closer here on the peak in front of us, you see the two peaks from the opposite side from when we saw them in the Castell earlier, which um, the theory goes, and I think yeah. it's true, that on the left, the peak is um, Kiryat, excuse me, Givat Kiryat Yarim, where you see there's a big white statue in the top. Uh-huh. Can you make out the statue on the left side? Yeah, it's the, it's so the that is a uh, Christian thing, right? <laughs> it's a majorly Christian. It's the um, <laughs> Virgin Mary, um, <clears throat> who uh, who stands built by built by a French um, Catholic monastery that is up there, and they sit on the ruins, the archaeological ruins that we can't access there. That would be one of the tours that would take you around Tulsa. And if I could access that, would be would be biblical Givat um, Kiryat Yarim, where the Aron Kodesh was stored. And um, they excavated there once, decades ago, and they found remnants that check out to the days of, of Yoshua. Um, so then maybe just before we get to the story of Nevelan, just a couple words about that. That area then is um, Kiryat Yarim and Givat Yarim. Who, what's the first claim to fame in the Tanakh? What do we read about in the, in the Parsha in the Haftarah this last week? Wasn't it, it Yeshaya? Let's say it again. With Yeshaya, um, your, your base. It was Yoshua. Yeshua? It was Yeshua this last week. Oh. And um, the first story is about one of the four cities, the Givonim. Kerat Yerim is one of the four cities, the Givonim. Uh, uh, one of the Canaanite groups uh, were Givonim who went to Yeshua with a lie and they told him, we come from a distant land and we heard about Hashem, we heard about all the miracles, we want to be Jewish, please. And Yeshua fell for it and he converted them uh, only to discover that they were locals, and the locals, yeah, were not so. We were not so open to their conversion. They were they were slated for slaughter. They were they were supposed to be supposed to be wiped out. The Canaanim, but they got they got away with it, and they converted. They would be called and Chazal referred to them um, repeatedly through the through the oh, Gemara water, as the water carriers. water carriers. Remember the term for it, Nisinim. They were put to be the water drawers and the wood cutters. And um, so that's one story that t- that this is one of the four cities. If this is the place, which I think it probably is. Um, then another story is um, deals with what I referred to earlier today, which is this is the place of the Aron Kodesh. For 20 years, after the Aron Kodesh was stolen by the? Plishtim. taken to? The various Plishtim cities of Ashkelon and Gat, and they had, they got there, they, had, they got all kinds of plagues, they had Torim and Achbarim, rats and hemorrhoids and oh. such, and then it was taken to? Beit Shemesh, the people, the Jews of Beit Shemesh did not know how to treat it well. Someone over and grabbed it, and they got the Torim and the and the uh, Achbarim, the hemorrhoids and rats. And then it was taken to um, Givat Kirat Yarim, given to the supervision of Elazar uh, Aminadab ben Elazar, who was a Kohen. And the Jews of Kirat Yarim knew how to treat the Aaron Kodesh with proper kavod, and there it stayed for twenty totally peaceful years. And it's a striking statement in the pasuk because um, they're peaceful years when this is a very tumultuous period. Everywhere else in Eretz Yisrael, there's the period of Shaul and fighting, and David Melech eventually comes to power. And the meanwhile, the Aron Kodesh is peace, peacefully sitting in um, in Givat Kiryat Yarim, eventually taken off and uh, brought to the Ir David and later to the base of Mikdash. It's the home of Uriah ben Shemaya, who was a Navi in the late First Temple period, coming from Kiryat Yarim. And it was Uriah who went, and he's... He's mentioned in the very famous Agadita that I keep making these references, assuming you know what I'm going to talk about. Maybe you do. Remember the Agadita at the very end of Makos with Rabbi Akiva who walks in the ruins of, of, of the Harabais and he sees the fox oh, yeah. coming out of the ruins. Mm-hmm. So there he makes reference to a pasuk in Uriah, his, his predicting of how the Beis Mikdash would be 
lying as a heap in ruins, but then followed by the pasuk in, connected to another pasuk to Zechariah, who envisions old men and old women and young children sitting in the uh, new, re, new, rebuilt, newly rebuilt Yerushalayim streets and sees that if the negative has already come true, the positive has come true, the negative was coming through Uriah. Uriah um, gave, uh, like all the prophets in those days, they were fearless. He gave harsh, searing rebuke to Yoyakim, the third to last king, who could fret Yoyakim. He with a tattoo in choice places. Uh, um, oh, that one. Who um, revisited the place from which he came, the Gemara and Chelek tells us. Um, and um, so he rebuked. Can you imagine being rebuked? He was rebuked by Uriah. And they chased him down to Egypt, dragged him back, and the king personally slaughtered him. So he was from Kiryat Arim. Um, the, the Jews of Kiryat Arim kept their identity in Bavel, lived together when they were in Gaulus, so they would remember that this is, they really belonged in Eretz Israel. They lived together when they were in Gaulus, and when they returned, they came back with Zerubavel, Kate's Bavel, Zerubavel, with the first Shivat Zion, and they resettled in Kiryat Yarim. So it's a place that, you know, has existed over the years, and it was taken over by Arabs. Uh, the, it was, it was uh, then late, later on built by, as a monastery for the, for the Christians, and um, later settled by, you know, the story of modern-day Telstone, built on Kirat Yarim. Telstone is the right mountaintop, probably the northernmost part in Yehuda. These two mountains, essentially, uh, both both um, populated, uh, make up Telstone today. Tells from Tel's Yeshiva, Stone from Irving Stone, uh, who gave all the money for the Stone Chumash and many other, uh, many other uh, philanthropies. So that's modern-day Telstone. Um, this was, this area, This I'm going to segue into the area. What else do we see? Oh, yeah, I should mention this community with the European um, red and gray rooftops is called Yad Shmona. Um, this one's dedicated to eight Jews who were um, extradited by the Finnish government to the Nazis and went to concentration camps and murdered there. Uh, the Finnish government felt very bad for that and tried to, um, exp- uh, tried to get atonement for their sins by donating money to build a community here. They built Yad Shmona. Yad means memorial, like Yad Vashem. Uh, it means a memorial, Yad Shmona, memory of the, of the eight. It's less than a generous donation from our perspective because it's a stronghold of missionary activity. They have a whole place there where they have a Bible visit, visit center, and um, there was a point where they actually distributed paraphern- um, missionary, missionizing paraphernalia in Telstone and the Rav of Telstone of Shulman, whose son, Hillel Seb was the one who got recently remarried. So Rav Shulman, the Maridas of Telstone, came and like screamed and got rid of it, and they haven't started up with Telstone. But they're a missionary center the, in our midst. Uh, did, did the Finnish government do that intentionally? Donated money so that a They a, probably, a because most Christians don't see missionizing as a problem, it probably didn't occur to them that that would even be an issue one way or the other. Of course, we'll go and we'll send Finns to be there. We'll be, we'll be good friends of the states. We'll support, we'll be Zionists and support the state. And they probably didn't occur to them that we'd find a fence that they would try to missionize us. Right. They, they think of it as they're doing us a, a favor. Right. right. Uh, as if they finished the job. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. The um, before any of this was here, before any of the structures that you see, at least, except for well, the pestle on the on the, in the church that that had been around, um, but not that long. It was built at the end of the nineteenth century. Um, this these were all the land holdings of the um, Arabs, the clans who lived in Abu Ghosh. Abu Ghosh, who it was actually a person once who was a sheikh who settled from the Cherkasian Mountains in the north in the area we think of as the former Soviet Union. Uh, and they came in the 15th, 16th century. Um, it's overwhelmingly one family. Um, a th- if you look in the phone directory in Abu Ghosh, a third of the last names are Jabber. 
like, you know, everybody's a jabber because they're all from the same family. Um, and other people now, they're Jews who live there and there are other kind of interesting things. But the Arabs of Abu Ghosh, who eventually uh, became Muslim, lived here. I mentioned how the Chida, when traveling along the main road, the main road historically always cut through the two Kiryat Yarims, right between these two mountains, and you had to pay a, a road tax as you went down there. Um, they were they were the landholders, and they're they're critical in the in the telling of the story. But I'll take a question. To side note, yeah, go ahead. Uh, from where was was Abu Ghosh again? The Sheikh from. So he was from the Turkation Mountains, which is former Soviet Union. Yeah. Which country? The Caucasus. Uh yeah. Uh huh. So, think so. Uh, Azerbaijan or, or or Georgia sort of. One of those. Ta- ta- area. Ta- yeah. Yes. Uh-huh, fine. Um, there's a correct answer to that. It's not clear to me, so I don't want to guess fine, fine. and say incorrectly. I'm sure you could you'll you'll pin it down and tell me. I'll be grateful. Um, yeah. So, cut fast forward. The um, Arabs of Abu Ghosh uh, were savvy business people, realized that they had valuable land holdings along a major artery of traffic. And they're the ones that if you wanted to buy, if you want to set up shop in Malay Hamushah, they went up the kibbutz, you buy the land from the local Arabs in Abu Ghosh. Uh, same with virtually every place, certainly Telstone, the uh, Surutskins and Irving Stone got together, they, they raised the money and they paid off the Arabs of Abu Ghosh to, for, the, for, these, uh, for these mountains that are called Telstone now, and that's true for all of these land holdings, including historical Nevealan. Uh In this case, it was the government, it was the, not government, but the, the main Zionist government, meaning the pre-state um, Zionist movement, um, had a budget uh, for these kinds of things that they saw was going, were going to help the war efforts to send, to send young people here. Uh, they decided to buy the, the area, and then you had to find people who were actually prepared and capable of building a kibbutz, which is not easy. You got to set up, I don't, we're so ill prepared for so many things, right? You got to do it yourself here. Build everything. You know, none of this existed. I, 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 it's a shame I forgot the, uh, the book that has all the photos, but you have to imagine a barren mountain that these, and who are the people that came? These were overwhelmingly, it was like a youth group. They were kids in there, 15, 16, 17 years old, who had survived the Holocaust, uh, mostly French. They had, um, it, it, they had their own ordeals of crossing the, the, the Alps, uh, of getting to freedom, of fighting with the freedom fighters, eventually coming to Palestine, where they were assigned in different groups of trainer, uh, training in the north of the country. And um, they weren't a homogenous, a cohesive group entirely, but some of them were old friends. And then there was an opportunity to come and you can build in the Judean mountains and, and defend Yerushalayim and how romantic sounding that was. And so about 31 young people, um, boys and girls, came together and they set up shop. And I don't know if you know the history of the French Jews, but um, we talked earlier today about Liberté, Galité, Fraternité, the Napoleon and the, um, the, the modern-day um, French Revolution. That did not have a positive effect on the Jews. France, the French Jewish community, which is large, was one of the most assimilated together with Germany and Amsterdam and most, most uh, the Netherlands and most of the Western European countries. The Jews were allowed to come to university. They were, they were exposed to the modern culture and it didn't go down well. Most of them lost their Judaism. And that was certainly true of most of these kids who didn't have a Jewish bone in their, I mean, didn't really have any Jewish identity per se, but they came and they came with idealism. They're gonna build up Eretz Israel and defend the country. And um, the girls wore short shorts, you know, and that was the culture. And um, the Arabs came initially and saw this foreign culture, this foreign implant. They did not, were not used to these um, assimilated, they, they knew the religious Jews. Religious has been around, but we're a different breed. 
these these new radicalized liberal French Jews. Ugh. One of the uh, one of the followers turned to the Sultan, and he said, "Let's kill them. Let's attack them. Let's get rid of them." What are they doing here? You know, the Muslims have an eye on kedusha and on holiness. Their women at least dress modestly. And the sheikh had a line. It's in Aftali Ras's book. Uh, he researched it and he found the the the, 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 uh, the sultan's response was, "With Jews, we don't make. We're not going to make war. We're going to make business." And they have ever since. They've done very well in Abu Ghosh. There, there, uh, enterprising, uh, financially uh, sharp, savvy people. Um, so they um, they allowed the Jews to come and set up shop, and they did. And what you're looking at. That building predates the kibbutz, the main central building with the red roof, with the red tiled uh, brick, the tiled roof. Um, that was originally the building of an effendi. An effendi was, um, was a governor from the pre-British mandate, the Ottoman period. The Ottomans would send governors, Muslims, to Palestine, to different parts, to rule. At least, not so much rule, it's just to be. Because you can't have a country without having somebody saying, I'm in charge. So they sent him. They sent them. They would only send them for two years. Why? They didn't want anybody to get to amass too much of a power base and become a threat to the sultan back in, uh, in, um, in, in uh, Istanbul. So, uh, so they came for a couple of years, and then they were relieved, and somebody else came and sat. It was like a two-year holiday. And they lived in this house, and they did whatever they did. It was a very corrupt time because nobody cared. If you're only here for two years, you weren't going to develop much of the infrastructure or do much to set up shop. Um, but that was the original house, and when, they, when it was abandoned... And when the, uh, when the kibbutzniks came, they made it into their central building for everything. It was their rec hall, it was their dining room, it was uh, everything else. These, meanwhile, were set up, you'll see, tiny little homes. That's people lived in, tiny little homes. There's a well, there isn't flowing water here. You didn't have electricity. It was a really spartan, difficult, challenging life. But in the early years, the accounts that Naftali Raz uh, uh, got was... Um, there was a great excitement with all the hardship, but you were coming, you were building, you were part of something. That was true if you learn some of the original history of Zionism in the early decades before there was a state. That spirit of we're coming and we're the pioneers, uh, inter- the, the term pioneer in Hebrew, chalutzim. Uh, it was like a, a great word. In my secular socialist Zionist summer camp, uh, one of the divisions was called the chalutzim. Right? It was like a thing. It should be a chalutznik. Right? That means you're a pioneer, you're brave, and there's a, rom- there's a romanticism to it. There's a glamour to being the first. You're coming, and you're not just coming, but we heard the whole history why everybody knew that Yerushalayim and the road to Yerushalayim was critical. Right? So you're doing something for the Jewish nation. That felt great. And so you were willing to bear the hardship, to set up shop, to, uh, to whatever, whatever it took. So that's that's uh, that's a part of the story that unfolds here. Yeah, it looks like you have something intelligent to say. No, no, I'm just something I'm paying attention. Something something moronic to say, possibly. No. Okay. Anybody? Well, yeah? Jabs, snarky comments. Question. Question. Is Abu Ghosh dangerous today? Abu Ghosh is not so bad. It really isn't. It's relative not like to the it's air. not like you're. Uh, no, you could walk there. There things things won't happen. The uh, it, and and yeah, 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 yeah. People, do they're that? fine. They're fine. And there's, pre- there's relative peaceable, which is not to say that they're not without their hotheads. They have hotheads. I know I read a piece, somebody said, um, that somebody had covered Abu Ghosh in one of the, one of the I, I, remember, I don't remember where I read the article, one of the, one of the uh, Israeli newspapers, and the, they were interviewing people, and one of the Arabs in Abu Ghosh said, you know, we have no problem, peaceful coexistence, we're fine with the Jews. The one thing we don't understand is Haram el-Sharaf, that, that was the term that escaped me earlier today, a few oh, hours fine. ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the Temple Mount, Come Haram el-Sharaf. What is the what is the problem the Jews have with Haram al-Sharaf? Everybody knows it's in all the history books that it, the books that it's a Muslim holy site. Why do the Jews claim that it's a Jewish holy site? 
said the peaceable Arab in Abu Ghosh. So even their education is not mihumaz, not not really uh, top top notch, you know. And they, you know, one of the problems with Muslims and uh, is that, and we've seen this repeatedly, not just occasional instances where they could radicalize overnight. Allah can come to them in a dream, and this is a story of several different terrorist attacks where a nice guy who worked in a makolit, you know, Allah came to him in a dream and told him to go blow, blow himself up among Jews, and that's what he did. So um, that makes for, there's a certain naivete when the Western world calls for, come on, people, just make friends, you know, let's solve the Middle East, you know, Middle East crisis with, you know, we'll give everybody McDonald's and free Coke for, you know, for 10 years, and they'll all make peace and be happy. They don't know who they're playing, they're dealing with here. Free burgers and coke for ten years. Um, yeah, so we're just talking about this is a sleek, which is a it's a well, but it covers for an underground secret um, ammunition base and, and 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 arms base because the British would come around make routine uh, inspections to make sure that uh, Jews did not have arms, which is ridiculous because the British knew better than anybody how dangerous it was for the Jews out here, how they were uh, completely exposed and vulnerable to Arab attack, uh, that they should not be armed. I mean, the British didn't do much for them. I don't know if you know the story of the massacres in Hebron and elsewhere, but the British did nothing to protect the Jews. So how were the Jews supposed to manage here? And for a lot of the British who were anti-Semitic, they didn't care. That was part of it. They, uh, they, they let the Jews just to their own, they left them to their own fate, unarmed. Um, so in the building itself, which was the center, the old timers remembered it. It was once unlocked. I guess people have gone in and done bad things in there. It's a shame because it'd be more romantic to see it. And also, you can see on the other side, we'll see the view. You can actually see out to the coast. And so, one of the functions of once they were up and functioning, Kibbutz Shilat served as a inter as a, as a midway communications place when they didn't have FaceTime or um, or TikTok. They they um, they could actually receive coded messages from a mountain. Uh, in Yerushalayim, read the message and then transmit it to the coastal plain. This is one way that they maintained some connection uh, during those very fraught period. People remembered, the old timers remembered um, um, gathering in the Effendi's palace on the, on the night of uh, the 29th of November, listening as the one radio, they only owned one radio in the entire place, one radio broadcast the tallying of votes uh, in the UN. And they still have the recording. Have you ever seen this footage? Have you ever hear the recordings? where you hear one by one, Panama abstained, Spain, no, America, yes. Each member country of the United Nations voted yes to partition Palestine, no, we're not gonna partition Palestine. No, not to partition Palestine was uh, essentially a vote no on a Jewish state. Um, when just squeaking by in the, in the UN's strange laws, in order to pass a resolution, you need two thirds majority, they just got two-thirds of the majority, and the members here remembered breaking out and rejoicing and dancing. We have a state. We have a state. At least that's what it felt like on November 29th, 1947, without realizing they were in for a pretty bitter year and a half of, of uh, a bloodshed, of war. Um, there were people here who died. People here who fought. There were battle sites here. I'm kind of skimping on those stories because they're not that interesting. They fought. They died. They lived. You know, there's not much. I mean, we could learn some strategic things, but I, I don't get much moral insight from that, so I don't really tell those stories, but, um, but the perception was, oh, you know, we're on the way to a state, and how wonderful after, after thousands of years in exile, and um, there is something, you know, in this whole discussion of, that we started today talking about of, you know, yay Yom Hatzma'ut, boo Yom Hatzma'ut, whatever, whatever side you come down on, there's something extraordinary about being here, you know, something's going on, it's just hard to interpret what. 
and um, and 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 given the Torah values that Jews always once upon a time had, uh, it's hard to reconcile with what's going on today. But um, the war was a very very difficult time here. They had they had extreme rations. They had very very few uh, medical supplies. They were what turned out they were a um, they were an island of refuge when Jews were coming between the, the coastal area, which is where most Jews lived, and Yerushalayim. This was one of the few safe places that people could actually come for refuge. And so people running away from Arabs would come here, hide out here. So there were a lot of dramatic scenarios. And the people rallied and they came together and they fought and they did very well. And then the war came and the war went. And then it was time to uh, set up shop and become a real community. And um, they did. And they had a whole industry here. And they were intelligent people. These, these are mostly French, although there was at least one American named Bobby Levinson uh, who, I think he changed his name from Levinson to Lev Sion. They liked to do that back in those days. They, uh, you know, Ben Gurion was once Ben, was, was, was Green. And Golda Meir was Mayerson. Um, so uh, Bobby Levinson came with his wife, idealistically from America, a secular guy. And he joined the, he joined the, uh, the crowd here and they set up shop. And uh, they tried to make a living, and they did. Let's go, we'll go see a few more of their buildings, and then we'll try to uh, take stock of what the mystery was. Here? Yeah, how many people were there? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let's do that, let me record that. It's recording, yeah. it's recording. Yeah. Oh, it's recording now? Yeah. yeah so so um, that would have been a couple hundred people. Between, um, there, was, there was, well, after the original pioneers came, so then after the war, there was, remember, there was not yet a state, but there were Jewish refugees, and among the refugees, uh, people had parents, mostly, in this case, mothers, who had survived the war, uh, mostly from France, and they came over, and they, um, there was a big discussion, and it was hugely contentious, we'll make a left turn here, it was hugely contentious, what do you do with the mothers? Um, you see, most of the, many of the original buildings are not standing anymore. Some of these are just, you know, they're just, they've survived, they've been left up. The, this, is, this was Bobby Levinson's house that he built for his wife. And um, she, she, coming from America, was not exactly pleased. Um, so he has a, some kind of a compensation. He built her these, uh, these windows, which are a combination of windows and also um, turrets so you can shoot the enemy from the, from the inside. But um, without the brush of the trees here on a clear day, you can see down to the Mediterranean. So, um, so in Italy, there were a couple hundred people. And then this issue with the mothers and the, the, the refugees came where all these young people were later joined by their, um, their parents. And the big question, given the relative simplicity of life on kibbutz, and the simplicity of the quarters, even though they were making some money, they weren't wealthy, um, where do you put the parents? Do you build them new quarters for themselves? That's the way they were used to it in the old country. Do you say, move in with your own family, which is very much kibbutz style. The kibbutz style was very much, you know, individual rights didn't play a big role. You know, you may do, you lived a simplicity. And, you know, for the refugees, their perspective was, come on, these are Holocaust survivors. These people have lived through Gehenna, and they're coming now to Eretz HaKodesh to set up a new life. We have to take care of them. We have to, give, we have to treat them better. 
And the old old guard ide ideologue said, no, this is a kibbutz, one for all, one, all for one, and we do it the same thing for everybody, no special treatment. Doesn't matter if you're a refugee, doesn't matter if you're in concentration camp. And this was contentious, and ultimately the second side won. They didn't build special buildings for the refugees. They moved in. So Bobby and his wife, and, uh, well, actually, I don't know, it was, it, that was not here because they were not refugees, but some of the others, you know, and mom moved in, which I'm sure was very cozy. I'm sure they enjoyed that greatly. Yeah. Um, however they can treat them. Later, because of the cool, dark atmosphere, they um, used it to grow some of their mushrooms, and um, they grew, and actually this is part of their industry, they did really well in these, they grew all over the place, uh, here and outside as well, um, the uh, mushrooms of, of Neveillon, which was marketed as a French product, the Champignon de Neveillon, and uh, apparently did very well in that business too. So they, they managed, they managed. So here we have, putting the pieces together, a community of people, idealistic, bonding together during wartime, during a hard time, uh, trying to make a living, uh, economically manageable, like the viable, they, 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 they worked things out, who built, I mean, what previous generations of Jews would have plots to be in their shoes. I mean, you're living in Eretz Yisrael, in the mountains of, of Yehuda, around Yerushalayim, Yerush Kodesh. How, 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 how thrilling, how extraordinary. And um, they started moving out, and then they kept moving out, and then the place was abandoned, left to seed. And this is what remains. So what happened here? So you're, you're starting to say things. You're starting to get some insight. Uh, I'll let you think about it as we walk out. And we'll, 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 we'll give, we'll get, I'll do the, um, the Cherokee uh, Poe in the end. Right? He assembles all the suspects and he gathers all the information. And he then explains what happened, what was the mystery. Um, I think, yeah. I think I... You think I, I figured I, it out? I, 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 I mean, I you have pieces of the puzzle. I have a guess. Good. We'll talk about it at the end. We'll okay. talk about it at the end. Let's, let's think about it as we go. Okay. This little nothing here that nobody goes to. It's a Holocaust memorial, a couple trees. Yeah. Right through here, just, just right here. Yeah. That's what it is with memorials. They, they don't always, they're not always remembered. You, you, wanna, you wanna go see the memorial? You need a memorial for the memorial. You do, you do. It's very hard, you know, you think about it. There's very little that we can do to leave a legacy outside of Torah. <clears throat> if you teach, you know, if you're the Rambam and you teach Torah, Every two seconds in the world, somebody's putting the Rambam, and he's getting a chink in the heavens. That's a legacy. Like, short of that, you know, people's careers, people's money, it all vanishes. All the time. People think they're going to build buildings with their names on it. Because it explained why the Israeli government would keep it low-key that this happened. Oh because it, the kibbutz was central to the founding of Eretz Yisrael and um, like the idealistic everyone comes so if uh, you show uh, so that's my, you're going where my punchline is that's the bottom very dramatic punchline so let me let me build to that uh, to make it like you know, recording yeah so um, there were a number of factors um, kibbutz life was and remains um, questionably human uh, it sounds good on paper, you know, everybody's equal, we all vote, we all have, we all work for the common good. In practicality, Communism. doesn't work given human nature, we're all different, we have different needs, and uh, Torah acknowledges that, as much as we're also built on some kind of communal notion, there is the idea of kahila, and you have to, be, you have to do your part, but um, kibbutz life is stifling, and when one of the young members wanted to go to university to develop a certain field, 
he was laughed at by the other members is, oh, you think you're so special hoity-toity, right? Look at Mr. Fancy University guy. They made fun of such an idea uh, that you could be an individual. And so it crushed the individual spirit. And especially if you're not religious and you want to just be you and do your thing in a democratic world, it was, uh, it was, it was very frustrating. Uh, so there were, there were, that, was a, that was a factor. Being, interestingly, uh, they were here and they were part of a country, a new country. Um, and we don't always think of it in this terms, but Westerners in the state of Israel till today, people from France, from England, from America, uh, do, are not well integrated in societies and Israelis. I'm, I'm, I'm making a gross generalization. It may be unfair. It's, it's a caricature, but I, I'm prepared to defend it. Um, generally, um, they, they have this strange double-edged thing where they, on the one hand, admire everything that is American, French, or, or English. So if you import products, you say, American quality, they'll all buy it. But American people, British people, they make fun of. The most pilloried accent that they love to destroy is the American accent. Kane, anime are so top reads. Ken, anime Denver, or whatever. They'll, they'll, they'll say with a heavy, a piled on accent. That's like a classic Israeli caricature. Uh, and these guys felt like, you know, here they come, they're building up, they're coming, they're working really hard by the sweat of their brow, by the blood, you know, some of them lost their lives, and they were sort of ostracized in the mainstream of Israel. They felt that. Uh, like you were definitely keen to the, um, the infighting that took, that took place, the differences of opinion, you know, when it's one thing, I mean, you, you know how difficult it is to live in a dormitory. When you're here and you're alone, and you're in the middle of nowhere, and you're in a hostile area, and you're fighting a war, okay, so you bond together for common, for the common purpose or for, for survival. When the war ends, and now you're just building a life together, all, everybody's idiosyncrasies, everybody's irritating habits start to get to you. And so they did not always get, get along well. This uh, communal vote thing, uh, vote thing destroyed them, you know, especially over the, when, they, when they couldn't give a proper living quarter to their mother, who was a refugee, uh, they felt terrible about that. They felt that some moral uh, moral uh, imperative was, was, was violated. And um, this led to incredible strife uh, that tore apart the fabric of the kibbutz. So people started leaving. And um, it wasn't for lack of money, um, but they left, and they left bitter, angry, and ultimately, they didn't just leave the veil on overwhelmingly of the, of the somewhat 200 so on somewhat people. Almost all of them packed up and left Eretz Yisrael. And they didn't just leave Eretz Yisrael, some of them went back to France. You're appreciating the irony, of, the layered irony of this, of this story. They went back to France. You're going back to France? They killed you in France. You know what the Vichy government did in cooperation with the Nazi regime? And they went back to France, yeah. That was the degree of, of, of disillusionment. Naftali Raz searched in vain in all the Israeli archives. There wasn't a word about this story because as Benjamin perceptively saw, um, this was an embarrassment. You're a new Israeli co a, a country building on the kibbutz ethos. Let's band together, let's do this. This place defied everything that they stood for. And so they, uh, they, they basically pushed the story aside. Swallowed, swallowed the uh, information. Swept, and, uh, uh, swept it under the rug. Swept, swept under the rug. And so Nevelan, as, as, as you see, overgrown with weeds, uh, is, is an untold story, part of the modern state, uh, that's, that's, that's an inconvenient part for anybody who's a propagandist. Uh, but an interesting one if you're interested in trying to get insight, because as a Torah Jew, I come here. And I think, you know, the immodesty that the Arabs of Abu Ghosh perceived, 
the living here, you know, where, and Danny, you started speaking to this, you know, if you're not living a Torah life, what exactly are you doing? What kind of life society are you setting up? What goal are you building towards? Is it an empty Migdal Bavel that you're trying to, to build here? It's, um, it, you, lose, you lose it. You, you, it, it, becomes, uh, it becomes only frustrating. You only, you, you, it, under such circumstances, when you have no loftier goal, you get bogged down in the inconvenient, um, in, inconveniences of life. When you're leading a Torah life, when you see a Kaddish Baruch Hu, central in everything you're doing, when you're aspiring to more, you can manage the inconveniences and the setbacks of modern of, of life as they come. And um, if you lead a virtuous life, the land sustains you. If you lead a life full of um, hatred and fighting and sin, so the land regurgitates you, and as it did in Elan. So it's also, I don't know, it was a cautionary tale. That's a little bit too uh, dramatic sounding, but it, it's, it's, it's part of what's unfolding and part of the more complicated picture that we were saying earlier in Castel about, um, you know, is the current state of the, of the state of Israel a positive thing, a negative thing, or an incredibly complicated, uh, problematic thing that is still unfolding, that's still a work in progress. My conclusion on it is to, I, I don't know, I don't. I, uh, Rabbi Balsam heard me as being mainly pessimistic. I didn't mean to be over pessimistic. And when I quoted Rav Shaf and said that there's a lot of bad, I don't mean to ignore the immense good. There's so much great stuff going on. You know, you were just in a beautiful Torah community. We have Mincha there. There are Jews who are learning Torah, keeping Torah, uh, working on their midos, trying to keep mitzvahs properly. There's so much that's promising that it's anybody's guess where we're going. Uh, I usually end these discussions with the feeling that, okay, I have to do my part. I have to live here and try to raise my kids to be good people and uh, try to influence other people to do the same, the li limited ability that I have, and tell the story. The Veilan is uh, as a way of kind of, you know, putting perspective on things and motivating at least myself to do that. Yeah. Questions, thoughts? It's a good story, no? I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, what do you feel? We can stop recording. What do you feel like?